Good morning. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. And while you're turning there, let me say that I'm extraordinarily grateful for the ministry of Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church and its reputation as a church in this community that cares more about the kingdom of God and His glory than their own personal agenda. I'm grateful for Pastor Nail and his family. I think we looked pretty sharp in that Wendy's that day. I just thought I should mention that. One of us wore it better. I won't say who. That was a nice green polo. Hebrews chapter 4, and out of deference to God's Word, I'm going to invite you to stand as I read verses 11 through 13. This is what the author of Hebrews records for us, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Father, we praise you for your word. We pray for the blessing that comes in the reading of it. I pray also this morning that we would be left in marvel and awe at the great tool that you have given us to do the mission to which you have called us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm excited to be with you this morning, a morning in which you have traditionally talked about evangelism and missions. As a preliminary question, I think we should ask, what is the mission? That seems like an important question for the morning. I think there's very little controversy, but I want to give you at least three passages to mull over on this Sunday as we consider the work of evangelism and mission and soul winning in the greater Rocky Mount area. Of course, the first passage that comes to mind is Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. It's known as the Great Commission. We're told to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that Christ had commanded the disciples. There is one imperative in that particular command, that is to make disciples. There are three attenuating participles there, to go and to baptize and to teach. And uh, I think this is a passage with which you are largely familiar as a church that participates in the Southern Baptist Convention, a governing body or at least an affiliating body that several years ago took on as a moniker of itself, Great Commission Baptists. I think there is little controversy there. We may also think of passages like Acts 1.8, Acts 1.8, a passage that if you have not memorized it, you probably should. The disciples ask is now when the kingdom is coming immediately prior to Jesus' ascension, and he says, no, not now, but the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and when he does, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. We may also think of passages like 1 Corinthians 2, the first couple of verses there where Paul decries as his mission what it is that he does, what he desires to do through his ministry, that is to preach Christ and Him crucified. The mission as laid out throughout the Bible is not particularly controversial, at least not 
among this evangelical and God-fearing congregation. What I want to talk about, though, in our exposition of these couple of verses here in Hebrews chapter 4 is the tool that we have been given to achieve that mission. There are some heroes who are synonymous with the weapons that they wield. Arthur wields Excalibur. For those of you who have spent an awful lot of time, as I have, reading a lot of Tolkien, you'll know that Aragorn, the king of Gondor, wields Andruil, right? The flame of the West. I could go on there, but I'm stopping because, you know, nerdy has its limits on Sunday morning. Thor commands the mighty hammer Mjolnir. Heroes who rely on their legendary weapons to lead forward into battle, to fight against the enemy, to depose the malignant foe and to advance the mission of their king. There are some heroes who are synonymous with the weapons that they wield. And the weapon that we have been given to wield against darkness, to wield against unrighteousness, to wield against unbelief, is this book that you have in front of you. Without going into a protracted discussion on the sufficiency of Scripture or its inspiration or its inerrancy, Suffice to say that what we have in front of us is the very self-revelation of God. It is by Him, it is from Him, and it is about Him. It is God's divine self-revelation, such that when the Word speaks, God speaks. I was taking a course my freshman year of college a New Testament survey, and we had an incident where one day during class, our professor, who was wound up pretty tight, uh, had explained to everyone on the very first day of class, whatever you do, come in, sit down, be quiet, turn off your cell phones. And this was back in ancient history when everyone had the chunky brick cell phones, you know, just coming off the Zach Morris years where you had to have a backpack and wind the thing up. And so we were warned, turn off your cell phones. And there was a day in class and somebody's cell phone went off and immediately the professor just became rigid, instantaneously wrought over somebody's cell phone going off. But very graciously, he didn't say anything, right? Uh, The very next class session, someone else forgot to turn their cell phone off. And it rang, and it rang louder than any cell phone I've ever heard in my life. And our professor, not being able to withstand the sound of the ringing through his exposition of James any longer, stood up on the chair and, without missing a beat, said, it might as well be Jesus, right? Or it should be Jesus. It must be Jesus only calling you for you to have your cell phone turned on in the middle of my class. Obviously, it wasn't Jesus. But when we read this book, when we hold this book, when we expound from this book, when we share this book, we are sharing the very words of God. The world needs to hear it. Ran across some interesting statistics over the last few weeks that should express to you the need for this word to be shared with great clarity and conviction. This one will, I think, absolutely shock you. 24% of professing evangelicals in identifying allegedly biblical characters identify Joan of Arc as Noah's wife. 24%. In the same survey, evangelicals were asked to identify their five favorite Bible verses. Number one was, 
John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Number two on their list of favorite Bible verses was early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And number three was, I think it was uh, a penny saved is a penny earned, right? Which is, you know, were written by the great prophet Benjamin Franklin and poor Richard's almanac. Two of evangelicals, five favorite Bible verses aren't in the Bible, if that's not shocking enough, a statistic that came out from a Gallup poll just a couple of years ago among self-identifying regular church attenders in the United States, 9%, 9% identify Jesus as a created being whose younger brother is Satan. 9% of church-going believers or professing believers think that Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead, was created by the Father and has as his brother the angel of darkness. This is far and away the most biblically illiterate generation in history, and though they need the Word of God now more than ever, we've convinced ourselves, I think, that their biblical ignorance is best remedied by strategies that more often than not presume that the Word of God is incapable of meeting them where they are and dissecting their hearts and their motives and their lives and their souls and their faiths. We have sensed an increasing biblical illiteracy, and the response has been in mass by even evangelical churches to think of new and novel and creative ways of addressing them without giving them the Word. If I had a big idea or what uh, Edwards would call a doctrine for the morning, it would be this. And this is my argument through Hebrews 4 that I'll share with you just for a few moments this morning. It's that the Word of God is the foundation both of our message and our method as Great Commission believers. The Word of God must be the foundation both of our message and our method as Great Commission believers. Now, I think there's very little controversy about the idea that the Word of God should be the foundation of our message. If we're going to tell them something, we should probably share with them something that is doctrinally true, about which I think there is nobody in this room who would affirm otherwise, right? If we're going to teach them the Word, we might as well tell them what the Word actually has to say. It is the foundation of our message. When I candidated at Rocky Mount Bible Church, uh, we arrived there eight years ago this week. They said, what do you think about preaching? And I said, I have a very simple philosophy of preaching. I pick a book, and I work through that book start to finish. That's generally how I do that. If you're looking for creativity or novelty, I don't have that. I don't possess that. I have a much simpler routine. Maybe some of you have seen uh, the movie Remember the Titans, right? The old coach approaches the new coach and says, we need some new and exciting plays. And the new coach says, hey, I run seven plays. It's just like Novocaine. You give it enough time, it always works. This is generally my philosophy of preaching. It's a very simple thing. I don't think there's anyone in the room who would deny that the Word of God must be the foundation of our message. But there are an awful lot of churches there are an awful lot of believers. There are an awful lot of those who love Jesus Christ and affirm the truth of His Word who, however, 
refuse to grasp the Word of God as the primary method of reaching an unsaved world. We must give them the Word and get out of the way and let the Word do its work. The Word of God is the foundation of both our message and our method as Great Commission believers. Now, looking more closely at Hebrews chapter 4, we find in verse 11, right, let us therefore strive to enter that rest that no one may fall into the same sort of disobedience. In verse 12 is the verse that I'm sure you're very familiar with, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The first question we probably need to ask in order of understanding the context there of Hebrews chapter 4 is, what word are we talking about? When it says, the word of God is living and active, are we talking about the written word or are we talking about Jesus Christ? John chapter 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, right? Go ahead and turn back just for a moment to Hebrews chapter 1. You can see why this question uh, exists. Hebrews chapter 1, the first couple of verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. It is entirely possible to arrive at Hebrews chapter 4, and I think with some legitimacy understand the author there to be describing Jesus. I think what is probably more likely, though, is that what we have is the written Word here in Hebrews 4 bearing witness to the incarnate Word. And so, moving forward in our exposition this morning, I want you to understand that I reckon that what we have here in verse 12 is this Word, this self-revelation of God given by the Spirit to those men inspired to write it that it is authoritative and that it is inerrant. Of the context, we know the following, that the author is speaking of the power of the Word of God to discern our innermost thoughts and to determine whether we may be found obedient as heirs to the future Sabbath rest. In fact, one of the things that you'll find throughout the book of Hebrews, in fact, maybe the most common argument in the book of Hebrews, is that there was an old system under the law that has now been fulfilled, and there is a new system inaugurated by Christ, and that Christ is supreme in all ways. He is the greatest prophet. He is the greatest priest. He is the greatest king. He stands above and over all things. There is nothing that compares to Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, as the author here says in chapter 4, in the Old Testament, as Joshua was leading the people into the land, they were promised a Sabbath rest. That is, they would have six days of work and a day for rest. But the rest talked about here in Hebrews chapter 4 isn't that seventh day rest, right? Where you go to church, you get done around noon, you eat good food, and then you go home and wonder which Cam Newton is going to show up that day, right? It's not that Sabbath rest. It's an end times eschatological Sabbath rest. It's a rest at the coming of the kingdom of God, the likes of which the people of God have not known. There is a better Sabbath coming, the author argues, mediated by Jesus Christ 
And we are to be found obedient at the coming of that Sabbath. And so the author says here, how do we determine whether or not you have been found obedient? Does God, in fact, have the faculty to know whether or not you are living in such a way as to please Him in this Sabbath rest? Well, of course He does. He has this Word, and this Word is powerful, and it is meticulous, and it sees all things. It knows you inside and out. And so, starting in verse 12, He describes the Word. He describes the Word. For the Word of God is, He says first here, living and active. It is living and active. It's a note on the vitality of Scripture. A note on the vitality of Scripture. Had an interesting scenario uh, about a year ago at our church. Um, a lady called the office one day to complain about one of our members. She said, I ran into one of your members. Her name is Barbara. I ran into Barbara at the grocery store, and she was nasty to me. And you're her pastor, and I wanted to call and tell you that she had been nasty to me and that you should go fuss her out. And uh, I said, well, that is very interesting. Um, you know, what happened? Well, we were in the grocery store, and I reached for something, and she reached for the same thing. And she took it and wouldn't let me have it, and so I didn't have the last, you know, can of whatever. And, and I'm really, really mad at her. She's a terrible person. I don't like her. Oh, really? Well, did you talk to her about it? Allah, Matthew 18, did that ever? Well, no, I thought I'd call you. Well, tell me which Barbara you're talking about. Oh, well, it was Barbara so-and-so. And I said, well, I don't think that's possible. In fact, I, I don't mean to call you a liar, but I don't believe you. Well, why don't you believe me? Well, because Barbara so-and-so died four years ago. It would be impossible for her to be at the grocery store arguing with you about the last can of pumpkin pie filling or whatever it is. She has been six feet under in her body and in her spirit with her king for several years now. It wasn't her. It couldn't have been her. She is not alive, <laughs> at least not in a physical sense wandering around Smith's red and white. Right? This word that we have is alive. It's living. It's active. It is moving about doing the very thing that God intended for it to do. This word is full of vitality. He then goes on to describe it as sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Sharper than any two-edged sword. I love that. The type of sword described here is the sword that was used by the Roman army to conquer the known world. Uh, the machairon. It was a short, kind of a blunter sword, and the edge ran up one side to a point at the top and down the other way. It was sharpened all the way around. It was a sword of which Spurgeon would say, there's not a safe place on it. It's a weapon. It's visceral. It's dangerous. It has a capability to do violent work against unbelief. I spoke a couple of years ago at a campus crusade meeting, and I can't remember the exact passage I was preaching from, uh, but a guy came up to me afterward, and with all sweet intention, right, he was a nice, nice kid, uh, but he said, hey, I really liked your talk, thanks for the advice, and uh, there's a little part of me inside that just went, 
and I, I just smiled and nodded, thank you, thank you, and just walked away, you know, and I'm sure the vein in my forehead was bulging now, and my muscles were, because, uh, first of all, as a pastor, I don't know that I've ever really given many talks. I preach sermons, right? That's just a little quirk. Uh, if you run into your pastor after a Sunday service, let me encourage you. Uh, he is, in my not-so-humble opinion, one of the finest preachers in Rocky Mount. Please don't tell him, thanks for the advice, that was a nice talk, right? Uh, because he will want to take the largest Bible in his library and cludgeon you, I am sure. It's not advice. It's the Word of God. When it speaks, God speaks. He who moves mountains and calms seas, who retains every breath in your lungs from moment to moment to give you life, who throws the stars across the sky, has given us a book living and active and dangerous like a sword. It's not advice. It is powerful. Powerful to the end that it is fatal to unbelief, fatal to disobedience, fatal to the schemes of the devil. He goes on to say that it is And a note here beyond its capability, also its perceptiveness, able to divide both soul and spirit. It may cut between joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's important that we recognize that what we have described here as a sword, we, I think, too often treat like a feather. But this sword is also, in some sense, a scalpel. It has the capability to discern who we are on the inside, inside our hearts and minds. And it has the capability as a tool to accomplish the mission of God to do a great deal more than we commonly have given it to do. There are many, some I'm sure even in this room, who, like Pharisees, are whitewashed tombs, pristine on the exterior and dead within. And God says here in Hebrews chapter 4 that this tool which we bear has the capability to reckon to the eyes of God exactly who we are. There is no hiding There is no place beyond His purview. There is no shelter we can seek outside of the power and the scope of the sovereignty and the grasp of God. This tool which we yield. Is unfathomable in its capability to define precisely who we are and who we need to be. The argument that I've made to you has very simply been that this book must not only be the foundation of our message, but also the foundation of our method, our methodology. And all of our exposition here, though brief, of Hebrews chapter 4 builds to this idea. You are going to be confronted, I am sure, 
in the next few days and weeks or maybe even the next few months with people in your life who are not followers of Jesus Christ, who have not yielded in faith, who have not knelt in fealty to their king. And on this morning in which we annually think about evangelism and mission, let me encourage you that this book must be the foundation of your method in reaching them with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will be tempted to think otherwise. Don't. Preach and teach and read and give and communicate and bear the Word of God. Let the Word do its work and get out of the way. I'm sure that there are some of you who have young children at home and you're striving to teach them what it means to be an obedient and joyful follower of Jesus Christ. And for some of you, it's just not sinking in. And you're thinking about How can I explain to them this good news? How can I, maybe if I can only find a a great resource, if only I could find just that one type of Bible home curriculum or something, that would do the work. And I'm telling you, what you need to give them, not that those are bad things, but what you need to give them first is give them God's Word. God's Word can do the work. It must be the foundation of our methodology as Great Commission believers. And I'm sure that some of you are saying, well, Pastor, that sounds very nice, but I think maybe it's hopelessly naive. And I understand that sentiment, but to you, I would encourage you that this word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You say, I, I don't think you understand my child. My child in particular just doesn't seem to get it. I don't think that simply reading to them the word and encouraging them to read the word for themselves and bringing them to church where they'll hear the word is going to accomplish the ends to which I desire. I would encourage you also of passages like Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that it goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the person to which I purpose." and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This word was sent in part as a tool for the believer to reach the unbelieving world. It will not return void to our God. Give them the word, and let the word do its work. And standing out of the way, marvel at the power of God in His word. I'm sure that some of you will run into friends or maybe family throughout the holidays. You'll say, well, maybe it's not a child in my home who has not yet come to faith. Maybe it's a family member or a friend of the family I'll see throughout the Christmas season. Uh, It's it's a next-door neighbor who's not only not a believer but is antagonistic to the faith. He is so hard-hearted, and I have worked so long to find that one book on apologetics. If only 
If only I could master William Lane Craig. If only I could read one more book by Ravi Zacharias. I am sure that I could find some argument so overwhelmingly convincing that I could do the work. And you're telling me to give them the Bible, just give them the Bible, just read to them and offer them and preach to them and teach them the Bible? Naive or not. The Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Jeremiah 23, verses 28 and 29 record the following. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks rock in pieces? He has given us this thing. Let it do its work. Give them the Word. Let the Word work. Get out of the way. This is a mighty relief to mature believers because your task in the Great Commission is not novelty, not that we should eschew novelty or creativity. It's not to find the best arguments. It's not to work at being so irresistibly persuasive as an arguer for the gospel. It is to share the gospel, to read the gospel, to give the gospel to promote the gospel, and then to let the gospel do its thing. We have the most incredible sword, the likes of which the spiritual world has never known. Wield it in confidence. It will do what it was sent to do. Now, uh, if I were to share with you uh, two brief points of application, uh, I would share them this way, and, and I'll close here briefly. Uh, let me say this first, uh, application one here for whatever it's worth. This is not immediately found in Scripture. This is not inspired. This is just a pastor you don't know coming in for a day, right? Uh, get in the Word. Get in the Word. You cannot impart what you do not possess. You're wondering why your kids aren't internalizing the Word of God. Start here. Start by letting them see you read the Word of God. You're wondering why your frigid family member hasn't come to faith. Let them first see you imbibe on the faith and on the Word. Right. Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers, is famous for saying, an army can't march on an empty stomach. Get in the Word. May you delight in it. I pray that for you. Uh, in classical on Tuesday mornings, we've just started thinking about some of the Psalms, right? And David says in Psalm 1, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I pray it would be so for you. Not treachery or obligation, but joy. Joy for the Word of God. 
get in the Word. And secondly, we must give credit where credit is due. Wielding this sword requires a tremendous amount of humility. Wielding this sword requires attitudinally a tremendous amount of humility. On Sunday, March the 9th, 1522, Martin Luther stood in the pulpit of the church there in Wittenberg and delivered a sermon on the insufficiency and the unbiblical nature of the Mass. There were people in his congregation who had left the Roman Catholic Church and were following after the teachings of Luther and the early Reformers but who in their homes were still holding a private mass for their families. And so Luther was talking about the absurdity of saying we reject the church but still having mass in our homes. Well, his students became so energized that they ran out into the streets and they started going door to door and knocking on the doors. And any of the families that were holding the private mass in their houses... Well, they drug all of those instruments out into the street and mashed them to pieces and set them aflame. And it caused quite a ruckus there in Wittenberg, as you can imagine. Here are Luther's students now demolishing the city in the name of Luther's teachings. So the next morning, Luther gets up into the pulpit there before his students and begins to tell them about how they are to, in an appropriate sense, change the world for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he begins talking about his legacy there in the Reformation, uh, what his role maybe inaugurated only five years earlier. How did he do what he intended to do? He says, there are a number of times that I have preached against the Mass, but I need you to know that it was not something that I did. It was something that God did, and it's something that God is doing, and He's doing through his word. And so he preaches this sermon, I did nothing, the word did everything on Monday, March the 10th, 1522. He says, and I quote, however, it should be preached and taught with tongue and pen that to hold mass in such a manner is sinful, and yet no one should be dragged away from it by their hair, for it should be left to God and his word, and the word should be allowed to work alone without our work or interference. He says, going on, therefore, we should give free course to the Word and not add our own works to it. We have the jus verbi, that is the right to speak, but not the executio, that is the power to accomplish. We should preach the Word, but the results must be left solely to God's good pleasure. There is more power, he says, in the Word, and thus God would accomplish more with His Word than if you and I were to merge all our power into one heap. He says, in recounting the events of which he has participated here in the early church, the Reformation church, when the word took hold of their hearts, they forsook them, that is, this sinful deeds of the mass, of their own accord. And in consequence, the thing fell of itself. Likewise, if I had seen them holding mass, I would have preached to them and admonished them. Had they heeded my admonition, I would have won them. If not, I would nevertheless have not torn them from it by the hair or employed any force, but simply allowed the word to act and prayed for them. For the word created heaven and earth and all things. The word must do this thing, and not we poor sinners. In short, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no one by force, 
For faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example, Luther says. I opposed indulgences in all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, no comment there particularly. The word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to foment trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed upon the world and Germany. Indeed, I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not have been safe. But what would that have been? Mere fool's play. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. So what do you suppose is Satan's thought when one tries to do the thing by kicking up a row? He sits back in hell and thinks, oh, what a fine game the fools are up to now. But when we spread the word alone and let it alone do the work, that distresses him. The word of God must be for us not only the foundation of our message, it must also be the foundation of our methodology. And when you are confronted in Rocky Mount with those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, let me encourage you that reading books are fine, finding great commentaries and consulting them is good and appealing to the podcast of Ravi Zacharias and others. Those are all wonderful things. I'm not encouraging you away from them. They're wonderful. Let's use those resources. But first and foremost, do this. Let the Word speak. Give them the Word. And let the Word do its work, because it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Father, we praise You for this Word. We praise You that the great task to which we have been called has been met with a great tool and that we have what we need to do what we have been called to do. Father, I pray that for all those present that we would reckon the Word rightly, that we would understand that it is not some book of ancient wisdom, that it is not some secondarily or tertiary thing in the annals of history but that it is from you, that it is your revelation about who you are and what you've done and what you will continue to do. Father, I pray that we would wield it with great caution, but also with great confidence. And I pray that we would be made worshipful anew in light of the witness of what this word is doing and will do. Father, let us this week especially demonstrate our gratitude for all your innumerable gifts, among them your Son, the incarnate Word, in this book, the written Word. In Jesus' name, amen.